Okay, we are in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We're reading from verse 27. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Okay, so, so uh, uh, difficult times came upon the church in Jerusalem. Prior to their having given away all their property and everything, they were actually doing rather well. There was a persecution that had occurred. And now they came into a time of need. And now what's happening is this Gentile church in Antioch, a church that, that is founded upon Gentiles, not Jews, but Gentiles, is now donating money and giving money for the relief of the church in Jerusalem. So an offering was being taken up. And in the same way that the Jews didn't care much for the Gentiles, the Gentiles didn't care much for the Jews. And so Paul and Barnabas, who are Jews and teachers there in that church, teach them how to give. They are teaching these Gentiles how to give. And they're saying, we want you to give not just for the body of Christ here, in this church in Antioch, We want you to learn how to give to the church in Jerusalem, to a church where there's Jews there that now have come to know Jesus. And I want you, he's telling this church, to learn how to give. And it says in verse 29, And in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren in Judea. So then they take an offering. They are being asked to give to someone beyond their own church. This is a normal thing. It is a scriptural pattern. It is a good thing. Because we are inherently selfish. People are inherently selfish. And we need to be taught to give. The messages that bother people the most is when the pastor stands up and talks about giving. If the pastor does it once a year... The people will say, oh, that pastor always talks about giving money. If he does it once a year, I'm telling you, that's what he's accused of. We need to learn to give because we're inherently selfish. We're selfish in many ways. One of the things that breaks us of our selfishness is God grants us children. And people that don't have children actually remain selfish a lot longer than people that have them. Because even having children teaches us to remove us from our selfishness. I was, I was talking with a friend of mine, 38 years old, and his wife is in their 30s. And I said, you know, when are you guys going to have kids? And between the two of them, their salary is over $200,000 a year. And he says, I'm not sure we can swing it financially. And, you know, this sounds kind of amusing, doesn't it? But you talk to couples in their 30s who make this kind of money, they'll tell you that. Why? Because we're inherently selfish. And we've got everything maxed out. And I'm so thankful that I had my first daughter when I was in graduate school. I had nothing, 
And I continue to have nothing. And it, it, it called us out of ourselves. Paul calls them into giving. He tells them that they really ought to give. Look in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is this chapter where Paul instructs on giving. And you may say, oh, here's Tour talking about giving again. Look, I don't talk about giving all the time, if you want to know the truth. And I'm not ashamed of talking about it because the scriptures talk about it. Moreover, I'm not asking for myself. You've never seen me stand up here and ask for an offering for myself. Never. And I've never taken a nickel for anywhere that I've ever ministered. I've spoken in churches all over the world. I've spoken in all sorts of settings. And even when they want to offer me money, I don't take it. I've never taken a nickel for teaching the scriptures. Never a nickel. But to ask and to raise for some other Christian cause, that I will do. Because that's what the scriptures talk about. And look in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Reading from verse 6, it says, Now this I say to you, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And he is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed." As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So you see that he says in the scriptures, if you give, you're going to get more in the sense that it, it says in verse 11, you will be enriched in, for everything. One of the reasons why I think I make more than the vast majority of my colleagues at the university is not because I'm smarter than these other people. It's because I give and God has given back to me. But even if he didn't, he calls me to give. There is a feeling like at some later stage, then I'll give. And this is a common feeling which comes upon college students. At some later point, I'll give, when I'm making real money. Well, do you buy real coffee? Well, sacrifice that and give. The pastor was talking today about offerings that are being taken. Every penny of that offering is given to missionaries. Every penny is given to missionaries. The, the, the church doesn't even skim off 10%. And they said that they, they had a goal last year, $55,000, and the church raised 110000 And I turned to Shreen and I said, this church is so gracious. They had a goal of $55,000 to give to missionaries last year. People came up with $110,000. You go to some churches, you'd be lucky if you could raise $1,000 to give to missionaries. They raised $110,000 last year, so this year they set the goal at $75,000. And I'll bet this church really comes up with that. And probably more, because people learn how to give. They give of themselves, they give. And you say, it's not always just extra. It is not. It is not just extra. And in fact, Jesus praised the, the, the poor woman because he says, she has given out of her sustenance. That means the things that sustain her, she has given out of. And then he turned to the rich people and says, all the rich people gave out of their surplus. 
So if you think, well, when I'll become rich, I'll give out of my surplus, doesn't count. You give out of your sustenance, out of something that sustains you, you give. You start now. You start when you're in college. When you have nothing, you start. You start to give. Even when you're in need, you start to give. And you learn the principle of sowing and reaping. He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows generously shall also reap generously. This is the pattern that's in Scripture. And so he takes up this offering back in Acts chapter, chapter 11. And it's sent by Saul and Barnabas to the church in Jerusalem. He in fact takes up an offering for a different people in a different country. And many of those Jews didn't even particularly like those Gentiles. And the Gentiles are being asked to give to them nonetheless. So even if you don't particularly like a people group, then ask God to deal with your heart because that's wrong and that's sin. To hate your brother. But we are called to give. Give something. We have an opportunity as a body of Christ to give to missionaries. Give. And commit to do that. You say, well, I don't have much. Well, whatever you have, give a portion. Give a small portion. Give part of it. Okay, Acts chapter 12, verse 1. And as we read this, this portion in Acts chapter 12, I want to think about God's perspective on death. What is God's perspective on death? Acts chapter 12, reading from verse 1. Now about the time that Herod the king laid hands on some who uh, now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them and he had James the brother of John put to death with the sword and when he saw that it pleased the Jews he proceeded to arrest Peter also now it was during the days of unleavened bread and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of, uh, of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Okay, so it says that King Herod, who is the tetrarch over that land, this is a different Herod than the Herod that had tried to get to kill Jesus when he was a baby. That, that Herod died. This is... This is uh, uh, Either his son or his grandson or his son-in-law, I don't quite remember, but it's, it's, it's uh, the next generation from that king. And he was, he was allowed to use this title o over this period. Uh, um, uh, uh, Caesar had actually allowed him to use this title. And he had laid hands, it, it says, on some people in the church in order to mistreat them. It's so matter-of-fact. He laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Where's God in all of this? I mean, just like that. Where is God? That the king decides, hey, I think I'll get some of these people in the church and just gather them up and mistreat them. And mistreating them isn't, you know, just you know, sticking his tongue out at them. This is real mistreatment. It says that he took James, the brother of John, and had him put to death with the sword. And being put to death with the sword in those days was to be beheaded. So he had James beheaded. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
So it made the Jews happy, because who was James? James was the brother of John. Both of these were disciples, and they were in the inner circles of the the disciples. Remember, Jesus had his twelve disciples, but he had this inner circle that he would bring with him only on certain occasions. They were James, his brother John, and Peter. So often it would say it was just James, John, and Peter that Jesus brought into the room, and he healed this, this, this young lady, for example. This was the inner circle with Jesus. And let's see what it talks about, a a little bit about about James. So keep your finger there, but turn back to Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, you get this short picture of James and John. And those were the two brothers whose Jewish mother brought them to Jesus to try to get a special place in heaven. In, In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, We are able. And he said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those who it has been who it has been prepared by my father. So this woman comes and she brings her her two sons, James and John, to Jesus. And we read in in another one of the Gospels that it really was James and John. And we know from another passage that the sons of Zebedee were James and John. So their mother goes to Jesus and says, make a special place for my two boys in the kingdom. And you know, these these kids are probably really nervous and embarrassed about this. I know from, from... my children, that if I speak in the presence of anyone and they are there, they get embarrassed. And, and they want Shereen and I to, to, to not speak because they're sure anything that we say will sound funny. And we assure them that we have been speaking to people for a long time, even before they were born, and we got through. And so she's asking on their behalf, I want them to have a special place in the kingdom. And in fact, they make the request too, because in the other gospel it talks about how they make the request too. So she's poking them, saying, ask them, ask them. You know, because Jesus had been teaching, if you don't ask, you don't receive. And so they ask for this special place in the kingdom. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. He says, but are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, we are able. And he said, my cup you shall drink. And when Jesus spoke of his cup, he spoke of his suffering. Jesus drank the cup of suffering. Jesus drank the cup of death. And we know that James and John were going to undergo suffering and death. James was the first of the apostles to die. Not the first of of the disciples. The first of the disciples in the church was Stephen, but the first of the apostles. And this, in Acts chapter 12, is so matter-of-fact And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Period. That's it. What about the pain of his mother? What about the pain of his brother John, the other apostle? And it turns out that John may have been the only apostle that died a natural death. He lived to a very old age. He was banished to the island of Patmos from where where he wrote the book of Revelation. But... Church tradition says that he lived even up to a hundred years old. But the first of the apostles to die was James. Very quickly, boom, his head's gone. Made a man happy. Herod's happy. Jews are happy. That's it. Where is God in all of this? 
Think about losing one of your sons. And I have one sentence written about it in the paper. James, the brother of John, was put to death with the sword. Period. End of story. That's it? That's for my son who followed Jesus? Who walked with him? Look at this death. So quick. So matter of fact. Verse 3, And when they sought please Jesus, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So he had Peter arrested. And he had him committed to, four, to, to it, it says, to four squads or quaternions. So, so there, there were four groups of four soldiers. And they would work in six-hour shifts. And you were chained to two of them at all times. And then there were two others that stood right at the door. And then in addition to that, you had the jail and all of its guards. But you did this with very special people who there was a high risk of having them get away because he had probably heard about how Peter had been in prison before and how he had gotten out before, how the the angel of the Lord just opened the gate and brought him out. And so you see that he has these these squads of soldiers around him in verse 5. And, and it says the only reason that they, he didn't have Peter killed is because it was the Passover. And so the Jews wouldn't allow murders to take place or, or, or executions to take place during the Passover. They didn't want it. And he was doing this to please the Jews. But Peter knew that at the end of the Passover, he's going to suffer the same fate that James just suffered. Because it made the Jews happy. In verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Why are they even praying? The church, it had just been shown that in spite of whatever prayers had been prayed, John had been killed. Why pray? God seems not to deliver. That's the pattern, right? What we learn from the book of Acts is that we can't take an individual passage and build a theology around it because it's not one of the epistles. It's not teaching us. It is an historical book. On one occasion, God didn't deliver. But still the people are in prayer. And this is what happens. People come to you and they're sick. Well, why should I pray? You know, one time I prayed for a guy and he died. So God obviously doesn't answer prayer. No. The scripture says pray for the sick. We pray for them. Sometimes God heals. Sometimes he doesn't heal. But we are implored to pray. They're praying for Peter in spite of what happened to James. Fervent prayers. Verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord... uh, I'm sorry, verse 6. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards at the front of the doors were watching over the prison. Okay, so a group of of four soldiers are are, are, are watching him, two chained to him. And he's sleeping... And he knows as soon as the, pa- the Passover's over, that's it, his fate. They're going to bring him out to kill him. And the guy is sleeping. I'm telling you, we wouldn't be sleeping. I wouldn't be sleeping. I mean, this is the last night. You think he's going to be sleeping? Why is Peter sleeping? Because Peter believed the Word of God. Jesus had already told Peter how, in a sense, he was going to die. And how he would be old when he died. And Peter was not an old man. Peter was a very young man. This is a few years after the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter's still a young man. Look in John, 
in John chapter 21. So turn back to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Jesus says to Peter in verse 18, John 21, 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus was speaking to Peter saying, when you're old, someone's going to take you where you don't want to go and have you killed. And there are other writings, not in the scripture, other writings that talk about the death of Peter, how Peter was crucified. Peter was even being crucified upside down because he says, I'm not worthy to die like my Lord died, crucify me upside down. But he was an old man at that time. Peter may have been sleeping because Jesus had already told him, you're going to die when you're old. In verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter turns around and sees John there on the beach. And in verse 21, so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to you these things and who wrote these things, and who now, and we know that his testimony is true. So, John, the disciple John, who became the Apostle John, is writing this gospel. And he says, when Peter saw me on the beach, he says, you tell me I'm going to grow old and die this, this way. What about him? How's he going to die? I know you love him a lot. Because he had the nickname, the one who Jesus loves, because he was the one who was always hanging out really close to Jesus. John was. And Jesus said, none of your concern how he's going to die. In fact, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? And so it says in verse 23, Therefore a saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So, because of this situation, a saying went out that John is never going to die. John's going to live until Jesus returns. But John clarifies, Jesus never said that. You know, sometimes you'll say, well, people will say, well, the early church interpreted such and such like this, therefore it must be like this. Not right. The early church interpreted this saying of Jesus that, that John would live forever until Jesus comes. And John is saying, no, they misinterpreted it. You have to go back to what Jesus specifically said. A lot of times you talk to somebody about the Bible, well, I, I interpret it like that. Well, that's just fine. You can interpret it like that, but what does it say? Let's see what the Scriptures say. Jesus specifically said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You see what I mean? We have to look at what the Scripture says. We can think whatever we want. But it doesn't mean anything. Except in our own minds. We have to look at what the Scripture says. And so, maybe that's why Peter was actually quite comfortable in, 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 in chapter 12 of, of the book of Acts. Because he knew he wasn't going to die at that time. 
Now let's look in, in uh, verse 7 of chapter 12 of Acts. And behold, the angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and he woke him up saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird up, your, gird up yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed through the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them by itself, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people who were expect- uh, all the, the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Okay, so here is Peter. He gets delivered. So what theology would you like to take? God always delivers his people from prison? Or God never delivers his people from prison? All we can get from this is, sometimes he delivers his people from prison, and sometimes he doesn't. And we have no clear teaching one way or the other in any of the epistles that God always does this or always does that when we're in prison. But if we look at this, we say, why God does one person die, get get beheaded, get killed like this, and the other person you deliver? What, was Peter more valuable to you than, than James? Why? Well, what is God's perspective on death? What is his perspective? Look in John chapter 11. And if we don't understand this, I'm telling you, we're going to get really confused in life. Because we're going to see a lot of really good people who love the Lord die. And we're going to see a lot of really good people who love the Lord have little kids that get run over by cars and die. And we're going to get all bent out of shape about this. And why, God? And get real upset with God. And God's like, On what were you basing your understanding of life and death? You apparently were like people in the first generation who heard one saying and developed a saying and thought something and John had to correct them and say, no, look at what the scripture said. So let's see in the book, in John's gospel, what Jesus has to say about life and death. John 11, reading from verse 23. Jesus said to her, your your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25 of John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is his perspective on death. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, do you believe this? He says, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Well, I live and I believe in Jesus, so then I'm never going to die. My spirit will never die. It will live eternally with Him. 
When a believer dies in Christ, he or she is forever with him. As I tell my children, one day you may lay my body in the grave, but remember, I'm not there. My spirit will be very much alive. This is God's perspective on death. Human perspective is, you're dead, that's it, it's over. God's perspective on death is, not over at all. What on earth are you talking about? He who lives and believes in me shall live even if he dies. You die, you're alive. You live, you're alive. The Spirit is always with me. So James can be taken out just like that, matter of fact. He's dead, he's gone. No, his Spirit is very much alive with Jesus. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. When we get a handle on this, it helps us to cope much better with death. The fear is when the unbeliever dies. When the unbeliever dies, it says their spirit also lives. And it shall live eternally separated from God. And then eventually be cast into a lake of fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. That was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. But that's where they will be cast. But those that live and believe in Him are forever with Him. This is the teaching of Scripture. And so that when one dies and you say... He had so much life before him. How can it be that God would allow this to happen? What God would allow this to happen? Well, you know, you and I live in a generation and in a country where we don't see a lot of, we don't see lots and lots of, uh, of, of murders and death of people and killings of people who love the Lord. Just because they love the Lord. But there are other generations and other lands where it happens all the time. Our direction, our understanding must be around this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, which means because He has risen from the dead, we will also. And the clear teaching of Scripture is also this, that our bodies will rise from the dead. You say, well, what if the body was cremated? God put it together once, He'll put it together again. The atoms survive the fire. They really do. You put atoms in the fire, they don't change into another type of atom. They're still there. All the carbon atoms are still there. All the oxygen atoms are still there. They really are. And he put it together once. He'll put it together again. He knows what he's doing. The clear teaching of Scripture is, He rose from the dead. We shall rise also. You say, well, how can that be? It's a miracle. It doesn't happen every day. It's going to happen one day. It will be a miraculous thing. It says, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ shall rise. To be with Him. Look in, in, uh, um, in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 21. Paul is speaking and Paul is in prison. Paul is in prison in Rome. This is his first imprisonment in Rome. Around 61 AD. He ends up having a second imprisonment in Rome. And from there he went to his death. But his first imprisonment in Rome, in in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he's saying, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if I am alive in the flesh, for, for if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. 
And I do not wish, and, and I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So, he says, you know, for me, to live in is Christ and to die is gain. I would like to depart now. I would like to be with Jesus. Look at this perspective. The man really believes he's going to be with the Lord. Because it's true. Believe it. He says, but if I'm here, I'm going to serve the Lord. Look over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He really believes in the resurrection. We will rise from the dead. And if you do not believe that, then start pulling pages out of your Bible and throwing them away. Because that is the clear teaching of Scripture. And when we get a handle on the fact that there is a resurrection and those who live and believe in Him shall never die, then we can understand why it can be written so matter-of-fact that James was beheaded. And that's that. Because in the view of God, that is not the end with James. In fact, James was, in many ways, very fortunate. He was the first of the apostles to go up and to be with him, with Jesus in heaven. He was the one that, you know, could greet all the others and say, let me show you around up here. He was the one. And in this, when it sa- Jesus says of little children, remember, the kingdom of God belongs to one such as these. This is what He told His disciples concerning the children. who the, he, They wanted to push the children away. And He says, let them come. The kingdom of God belongs to one such as these. Such as these. This gives you a perspective. That little children, the kingdom of God belongs to them. And so when you see the loss of this precious little child, you see, what, what happened? They're very much with the Lord. It is a very comforting thing to know that. As hard as death is, and the pain of death hits us all. When we lose a loved one, the pain is there. But the realization is this, and never lose sight of that, that that little child, is very much with the Lord and enjoying the Lord's presence. And that's God's perspective on death. That is God's perspective. That is the way God views death. It is not the end of the believer. Sometimes God delivers, sometimes God heals, sometimes He doesn't. You know, being in, in Houston, we see all these, these, these wonderful people come to MD Anderson for treatment. And many of them stay at Miss Harrison's house and and, and uh, we get to know them. Some of them live and some of them die. And what do we do? We, we 
spend our time here sharing with them, and some of them come to know the Lord during their time here. Because we want to make sure that when they live eternally, it's going to be with the Lord. The pain and the loss is real. It is there. Some God heals, and some He does not. Some God grants another 20 years of life, and some don't even get two months once they've been here. How do you explain this? How do you rationalize this? This is what life is. And when we understand God's perspective on death, it lets us cope much better with what's happening. A young couple about to be married. The guy gets run over by a car two months before the wedding. Where is God? When we have a perspective on what death is, it helps us to carry this burden. It helps us to see from His perspective. And it helps us to work through the pain of the loss. This is God's perspective on death. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of Your Word. That He who lives and believes in Me shall live even if He dies. And He who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Lord, thank You for challenging us by saying, do you believe this? Father, I believe. And Lord, I pray for each of these young people that they would have Your perspective on what death means. How there is life everlasting and life eternal. And that You would put within them the heart like Paul had. That all things in perspective are rubbish compared to knowing Christ and having the power of His resurrection and living eternally with Him. And Father, I pray that You would teach these young people to be generous that even in this time of offering, they would give something. Father, break them from their selfishness. Break them from their selfishness. Let them see what generosity is. Father, I pray that they would learn to sow generously so that they could reap generously from You, knowing Christ, knowing Him. Father, teach them to be giving and gracious. Father, thank You for Your mercies, for the grace of God. Father, work in these young people's lives and call them forth into fellowship with You. And Lord, I thank You in the name of Jesus. Amen.